Welcome to the CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing clinician and CMIO and the host of CMIO Podcast. And today I have Dr. Lee Milligan with me. Now Lee is a special guest. So I went to medical school with Lee about a million years ago. And um, Lee has really progressed in the health IT field. He is a CIO, he was a CMIO. I'm not sure if you're doing both now. Uh, Lee, uh, hello, welcome to the show. Hey Mark, great to connect with you again. It's only been, as you say, a million years. Really happy to reconnect and uh, talk a little bit about IT. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this. I, uh, uh, you know, you known throughout the, the health IT community, but uh, for for the the few that probably don't know you, would you mind just fill us in a little bit about your journey to becoming a CIO, CMIO, and what that was like for you? Sure. So uh, I think my case is similar to a lot of other folks who find themselves. Um, attempting to help out a little bit and then realizing that there's a big job to actually do. Um, I was in some discussions with my brother who works in and out in healthcare in the mid, like mid 2005, 2007, somewhere around there. And we were talking a lot about kind of this trajectory of where healthcare is going and specifically around some of the changes that will happen with IT. And Intermountain Healthcare has, of course, been the cutting edge of a lot of this stuff. They've had their own homegrown uh, EHR for quite a while before they completely discerned her. And as we were talking through this a little bit, it became clear to me that this train wreck was about to happen between healthcare and IT, and that a lot of stuff was going to be built, and it would be required of physicians to do, but docs didn't have a lot of say in what was happening. And so as I was thinking about that a bit, um, I ultimately decided to go back to school back in 2008 to pursue computer science here at a local uh, community college. And I did that for about two years before our system decided to do a selection process for an electronic health record. I got involved in that a bit, um, got to learn a little bit about that process, um, and then ultimately ended up becoming a credential trainer for the Epic platform. And in hindsight, it was a great entrance interacting with doctors and understanding their adult learning needs around new information has stuck with me this entire journey. So I'm really happy that was kind of my gateway with Epic anyways. After we went live, I ended up uh, going back to the Physician Builder Program that Epic has and ended up going through several certifications there, came back, built out a number of uh, production-ready builds within our instance of Epic, and learned a lot about the process, not just of the technical piece of build, but also change management and playing nice in the sandbox and, and understanding the terminology, and ultimately ended up becoming our, what was then called the medical director of informatics. So my journey, I think, is similar to some other folks in terms of kind of walking into it sideways, but ultimately ended up getting exposed to enough things that prepared me for the next steps. And then you became CIO. How did that come about? So I was cruising along as medical director of informatics. And at that time, I did a lot of things on the side to really prepare myself for kind of next steps. For starters, I had heard about this board certification process that was available through American Board of Preventive Medicine. And I began to pursue that, ultimately taking the board prep course that Amy offers called CIBRC which, by the way, for me personally, was a fantastic experience. It gave me 
kind of a broad overview of clinical informatics. But for the very first time, it felt, I'll say, somewhat finite in terms of its scope. Prior to that, it felt like it was just everything. And that was a really great experience. At the same time, I pursued some additional certifications. And on top of all that, I ended up doing some board work. And I have to say, this this approach of really understanding the technical pieces and how operationally these things roll out, combined with doing a little higher level board level work around strategy, was a really powerful combination ultimately in in preparing myself for uh, the CIO role. As CMIO, I worked really closely with the prior CIO. He had and I had a very good working relationship. I was fortunate that he he quickly tutored me on a lot of things and brought me into a lot of conversations that helped me prepare for this role. In January of this year, so almost eight months ago now, he decided to leave, and it was a rather sudden scenario. And so our incoming CEO at the time asked me to step into the role. And do you like it? I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah, it's, it's really fantastic to, to have a health system that is willing to bring a clinician into the lead role around IT. Because what it really says is that they value the clinician's perspective on how all this stuff impacts the people who actually have to use it. There, there aren't so many run. CMIO, CIOs out there, those who have made the, the transition over. I know, uh, I think only one or two others. Uh, are you aware of others out there who have made this leap? Yeah, so John Holomka is he's my hero in a lot of ways. He's done a lot of great stuff. He's actually a couple of years ahead of me at Harbor UCLA ER residency. He's also an ER doc. Mm-hmm. And he's been at Beth Israel Deaconess for 25 years there. Uh, Michael Pfeffer at UCLA. Here's an example, and Chris Longhurst at UCSD. So there are there are a few around the country, mm-hmm. but you're right; it's a it's a small club. Are you still doing the CMIO part as well? I am to some degree. I did hire a medical director of informatics in kind of backfilling my role, but I didn't want to throw everything on his plate. Um, the goal was to provide enough uh, on his plate that he could get experience and get his, his feet under him. He is a fantastic medical director of informatics. I couldn't ask for a better uh, a better person in that role. And he's done so much so fast that I'm quickly kind of offloading a lot of the stuff I used to do. Yeah, I would imagine you'd have to because how many direct reports do you have now, if you don't mind me asking you? What does it look like? What are, what are you managing right now? Yeah, so there's 261 people in the division of ITS. And our division is broken down into individual departments. We have the Department of Technical Services, so that's like networking and telephony and security, data storage, et cetera. And then we have informatics, of course, which includes Epic and and a few other applications. We have uh, medical records, which we call health information services, uh, which also includes, interestingly, data governance, as well as our integration and interface team actually reports up through medical records. And then ultimately we have ITS analytics. So four separate divisions and I have four reports. From there we have about 12 managers uh, below that. Okay, that kind of gives us a good scope. So you probably had to do some learning on the infrastructure side unless your undergraduate courses gave you enough insight. What, what was, was that learning curve like on, because you got the application side from, well, being in the builder for the, all the EPIC certifications, 
Tell me about the other sides, the security, the networking piece. Yeah, in, in, a, in a word, deep. Very <laughs> steep learning curve. Uh, out of the gate, I in the first couple of days, I tried to get my arms around what I was being asked to do. And the first thing I really had to do was be honest with myself. I had to take stock of like what I thought I brought to the table and what, in all honesty, what I don't bring to the table. And I literally wrote down what I thought I lacked. And I did that in an attempt not just to kind of identify it, but also to take action. And so as I looked through this, I identified finance and infrastructure and technical services as my two biggest areas of, uh, of need. And I ultimately went to my CEO and negotiated with him. And I said, look, I really want to do this. I'm, I'm happy to step up in this role. I'm going to need some tools in my toolbox to do this effectively. And so I asked for a couple of things. I asked for a, a consultant that I could bring in at 10 hours a week to help me focus on and think through finance, which has been an amazing experience. I also asked for a CIO coach. And that's where I get involved with uh, my friend Bill Russell, which and he's been fantastic to interact with. And the combination of those two tools in the toolbox has really helped me navigate this better than I otherwise could have. That is just fascinating. I think Bill's a great guy, so now I can put it together how, how you guys connected. That first day, I can feel the stress almost of how you, you know, have to... Oh my goodness! If we get hacked right now, I'm the I'm the one who's got to be held accountable. What about yeah. What about managing people? Because you, I, I guessing, as the director of informatics, did you have a, a maybe a handful of reports? Then now you've got a lot of people under you. What was that like? It's interesting because you know you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I approach it quite differently than my predecessor, uh, but he did a lot of things right, and I, I really wanted to not. Um, throw those pieces out. On the other hand, I had some of, my, some of my own ideas about what I thought I could do and what I brought to the table. And nuancing that a bit and making sure that you're keeping the best of what's already in place while adding additional value is really the challenge. And so for me, I the, the biggest area of focus I've had with my team since January is around not about outputting more stuff for other people, but it's actually around taking a pause and looking at our own internal processes and identifying where there are specific inefficiencies and putting in place the tools to be able to improve those inefficiencies. And I'll, I'll just give you one example. So one of the big things that happens in, in around budget time is the evaluation of the number of FTEs you have. And people talk about doing more with less. I would nuance that a little bit and I would say we have to do more with the same. And if we're going to be expected to do more with the same, we've got to do what we're doing better or more efficiently or faster. And in order to do that, in order to make it not just words, but actual reality, you've got to put in place the culture, the framework, the structure, and the expectation for folks to do things, to not just work in the system, but to work on the system. And so we've adopted here two very simple goals very high-level objectives for Asante ITS. Number one is the exceptional customer experience. And number two is the concept of us evolving to become a high-reliability organization. Hmm. And those are our two very high-level, simple, but I hope profound goals that if we accomplish them well, we've done our job. And when it comes to being highly reliable, it isn't just that the network doesn't have unplanned downtimes, but if I'm in the chart 
and I, I see EKG in chart review, I click on it, and it actually brings up an EKG instead of rhythm strip. Right. Or I click, I click on a pulse ox, and it shows me a pulse ox, not an FDV1. So being reliable is all those things put together. And so we've set up this very simple, these very simple objectives, and the framework we put in place around this is I promoted one of our managers to become a director of ITS Innovation. And he's tasked with leading us down this journey of internal process improvement, specifically leveraging OKRs. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with OKRs. No, um, go ahead and tell us more about that. But, okay. Uh, so there's this guy named John Doerr who wrote this book called Measure What Matters. And he was from Intel Corporation. And this was the methodology that they, they used uh, to do a lot of their internal process improvement and really become the leader for, for their field back in the day. John Doerr ultimately ended up taking this concept and sharing it with a number of groups, including Google, when Google was in the garage. And this is the internal process improvement methodology that Google uses today. And really what it is, is it's just the idea of having a clear objective and then having measurable, clear key results below that. So the OKR is objective and key results. Okay. The key to the whole thing, though, is that they tie in together. So I can have division-level objectives and then my directors and managers can have OKRs that support those, whether it's customer, the customer experience side, or whether it's the uh, high reliability side. And so that's the framework that we're in the process right now of putting in place. In terms of the customer service piece, it, was that culture there? Is that something you adopt, that you're saying is now important, or is that culture always there, and this is something you're continuing on from your predecessor? It, it was there. I would say it was there, but a little bit misinformed. And and I, I tweaked it a bit. It's, it's not customer service. It's customer experience. And it's, it's customer experience from end to end, from how we uh, impact the user interface to how do we train and teach to how do we respond to incidents all the way through the entire life cycle. And I would say that we had the misinformed view that in order to have good a good customer experience, we have to do what the customer is asking us to do. And it turns out the customer frequently asks for things that ultimately they don't really want because they don't understand the implications or the, the sequela of that decision. And so really the cultural shift that I'm trying to impart with folks is that we need to understand the problem first and then have a range of solutions that help shore that up but also don't break things down the road. Yeah, there's, there's a doctor I follow, Dr. Craig Joseph, and he wrote an article in LinkedIn once that the customer's not always right. And he's referring to physicians, particularly when they want every single lab test known to mankind on their order set. And we just, we know yeah. better. <laughs> we just think that's yeah. not what they really want. They want so, to so be true. easy. So um, just so our listeners have a rough idea as to what, what it looks like at your level. What percent of your day or week or month, however you want to do this, do you put towards like the leadership, the building the culture part versus the informatics part, analytics, or the infrastructure, the IT security, the, the stuff that we picture as the more traditional CIO work? How do you split your time? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think it varies from week to week, but if I had to say, like looking over the last eight months, I'd say about 40% is leadership-related, so HR stuff, legal, 
certainly budgeting right now, right in the middle of that. And uh, I'd say about 20% now is clinical informatics and analytics. And then traditional IT-related stuff around security and, and infrastructure, et cetera, that's probably another 40%. Hmm. Um, I spent a lot of that time learning and a lot of that time now at this point weighing in on what direction we're going to go. My big, my big focus around traditional IT-related items is the concept of on-premise versus cloud. And that's really a, that's really a, a philosophical question of how we want to conduct business. But at the end of the day, you've got to be, if you want to keep everything on-prem, you've got to be convinced that your folks have the required skill sets to keep up with how incredibly fast this industry is changing. And so the idea of on-prem versus cloud, I think, is a question that most CIOs are asking themselves. Yeah, what a tremendous shift, I suspect, in your daily work, though, because at 20% informatics, it was probably much heavier than that when you were just in the CMIO role. So a pretty, pretty dramatic change, I'm guessing, here. Do you, are you still practicing? Is that possible? Yeah, <laughs> I, I still, have, still have my license. I'm still board certified, but I haven't practiced in quite a while, and I, it's going to be hard to imagine a scenario where I can fit that in. There are a couple of docs who still do it, I think. I think Halamka still does it. I think he does toxicology, and he does it by via telephony. I think Michael Pfeffer still practices. So there are a couple people who do it, but it's frankly it's hard. Hmm. I'm sure it is. I I couldn't imagine that you're you're going to be able to do a lot of clinical work. So I want to go back to something you mentioned that you you brought in a medical director of informatics. What do you look for? When you picked that person, maybe, I'm, I don't know if they were internal or external, but what were the skills that you were like, you know, this is someone that's going to move up. This is someone I want as my right hand on that informatics side. I think our listeners who are, are physicians, clinicians, some are moving up. They want to know, what, sh- what should they be building yeah. in their skill set? Yeah, great, great question. It's very good timing, too, by the way, because I'm getting ready to post a new position for a .5 FTE clinical informatics and 0.5 clinical family practice or primary care. So I'm thinking about that a little bit. I would say, for starters, it isn't so much that they have the technical experience and the technical qualifications at this point to do the job. I view my role, in part, is to help identify what those needs are and to help provide guidance and support as folks are trying to gain those skills. Because this is a rapidly evolving industry, and so we have to be nimble, and as employers, we have to be willing to pick the right people and then support them as they gain the skill set. So I would say the actual technical skills out of the gate are less important. What's more important is that they approach it with the right attitude. They have they play nice in the sandbox. They answer the emails in a timely fashion. Yeah. They, they really basically just interact with people in a respectful way that gets the job done. And the other big piece is they have to be goal-oriented, the kind of people who can identify both tasks and goals and really go after them uh, with vigor. So is an informatics board certification required? Is an MBA required? Or is it the people skills, the soft skills that is driving you to pick that person? Yeah, I I want that person, like we have a physician builder um, program here, and I want that person to be on the track to become board certified in clinical informatics. When I went through my board certification process, it was really painful, frankly. 
but it was a really great experience also, and I gained so much knowledge. I can't imagine somebody coming into this field who's going to spend half or all their time on this work not having had that exposure and that uh, that schooling. So yeah, for sure, I, I would recommend the 10 by 10 course for starters. I would recommend the CIBRC uh, board prep. I would recommend the board certification. I, I even would go so far as to say the Chime CMIO boot camp was terrific. I don't know if you've had a chance to do that yet, but I had a good experience with it. I definitely want to do that. I have not. I'm in the middle of my EMEA course right now, so I know it just okay. what you're talking about. Um, I am enjoying it. It is. Uh, it just kind of reinforces some of the things that I'm doing day to day. You don't get some of the practical advice like what do you do when the doctor starts yelling at you, those kinds of things. Yeah. And so that's why I'm right. doing this podcast. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I'm learning yeah. from you guys. This is how it's done. Yeah. Uh, yeah, how to not need your response. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> What's your favorite uh, part of what you're doing now? What do you What do you like? What's charging you up? The thing I like the most, I, I would say, is the idea of translating our business and clinical needs to technical deliverables. Like actually making that strong case between what you're really trying to accomplish from a clinical quality perspective and an efficiency perspective to here's the IT pieces that we put in place help support and make that happen and that's everything from informatics to yeah the phone works okay i am positive that the doctors are coming up to you now that you're in this role going hey can i get this toy can i get that toy with probably no roi behind it that's not the typical doctor thing to do they just put it in your lap saying this is a cool toy is that happening am i right oh boy you have no idea (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah, I, I, I'll give you one example. So ultrasound. So ultrasound is something that we've taken great care of the last couple of years to standardize our approach to it. Single vendor, single integration and interface points, et cetera, et cetera. And I have, I have a, a doc who feels very strongly about putting a ultrasound in his clinic that is, you know, an ultrasound that he saw when he went to a conference someplace. And so we're having those conversations right now. And what I've discovered is these conversations are difficult to win if there is no framework in place for better decisions. And let me give you an example of that. So analytics, three years ago, our analytics platform, we didn't have a organized approach for how we, how we looked at our requests and actually organized and prioritized our requests. And so we're getting hammered from all sides. And so no matter who you talk to, they were always frustrated with the process because they couldn't get the results as quickly as they thought they could. But we put in place a very specific framework that everyone now knows that they follow in order to be able to get visibility on the request and to get get a framework in place. And it follows certain principles that we've identified as an organization that actually matter to us. When it comes to these requests that you're talking about, we need to put in place a similar framework. And I just this morning, literally this morning, uh, was speaking to our director of, of uh, purchase services. And we were talking through this a little bit, and together he and I are putting together a presentation for our executive team about here are the principles of engagement when we want to purchase a new device. And we wanted to align with what we've already identified are, are kind of our core vendors along those lines. Hmm. All right, great. I'm going to shift gears here just a little bit. It's obvious you're a lifelong learner. You, you, you've gone to school multiple times here, it sounds like, and continue to learn and, and add to your knowledge. 
for CMIOs that want to, or physician uh, informaticists that are come up and coming, tell me about the conferences that you're going to. Where are you getting your knowledge from outside of the traditional academic centers? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I would say the first one is actually not a conference, but rather building relationships with people in the industry. And that happens through it's you know connections to connections to connections, just like you and I talking right now. Right. Um, but also, it's helped. I'll tell you, frankly, I only subscribe to two uh, social networks, uh, LinkedIn and Twitter. And I will tell you, it's been really helpful to have those connections. I've, I've made a number of connections online with folks that later in real life we've connected, and uh, actually we've actually built out certain distribution lists for certain folks so that we can connect with each other. I'll be in a meeting. And there'll be a question raised, and I'll send out a question to my CMIO buddies here in the Pacific Northwest, and I'll literally get a half a dozen answers by the time the meeting's over with. And it's powerful, I'm telling you. It, it, it's nothing like, nothing like being able to say, here's what five other places are doing on this on this topic, uh, while the meeting's actually still still happening. So I would say start with that. For sure, I would join AMIA. I think AMIA does really great work. It's a little more focused on the kind of the academic side, but there's enough CMIOs now who are a part of it that I think it's gaining momentum for, for our our niche. I would say Chime has been great. I had a good experience with Chime. The CMIO bootcamp was, was terrific. Um, the 10 by 10 course was interesting. So that just for a moment on the 10 by 10 course, now that thing was started back in 2005, I think, and the, the idea behind, the reason they called it 10 by 10 was they wanted to have they thought they needed 10,000 physicians trained up in informatics by 2010, which is why they called it 10 by 10 course. And it really is kind of an introduction to clinical informatics and biomedical informatics. Uh, but while you're in that class, and it's offered probably half a dozen or a dozen places across the country, and I took it at OHSU, by the way, mm -hmm. the, you get to meet people in there that allow you to continue your education afterwards. And then I would lastly, I would say that a lot of the stuff that I learned happens through on the, on the spot research. Like I won't know the answer right away, but I'll use whatever tools are in my toolbox. One example is I find, frequently I hit a paywall when I find a study, for example. I was look, uh, one recent example is I was looking at immediate versus delayed release of lab results. And I'm, I'm a pretty strong advocate for immediate release. And I wanted to get a, there was a paper from, I think, 2014 that looked at what percentage of abnormal lab results do we never release to the patient? Mm. And I think it was 7.1%. It was a high percentage. And so I found it, but hit a paywall. And I needed to be able to distribute this to my clinical leaders and have a conversation around this. And so I reached out to our medical library and said, hey, I need you to pull this for me. A couple hours later, I had the article. So I try to use whatever tools are in my toolbox and just go after it. You and I are like-minded on that. We release labs in batches five times a day. So we are constantly getting them out the door. Um, normal, abnormal, now we don't do PATH. But, uh, you know, we th thought it was the, it's the patient's data and they, they need it. And they're taking good care of them. So we want to empower them. That's part of what we're doing. So uh, there was some pushback from providers. I'm sure you're finding that as well. But... Um, yeah, yeah. It's the, it yeah. seems to be the right thing to do, and it seems that, you know, it, uh, we have had no providers jump off the bridge yet uh, because of, <laughs> uh, you know, doing this. But um. 
Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because I look at it from both sides. I look at it from the side of, actually, a few sides. I've been a patient before, like a lot of people. I've been a provider. Um, now I'm on the IT side. And when we release stuff to folks, there's two different ways we can do it. We can do it immediately through the, the, the portal, not in my case, my chart. But we can also, they can also just go to medical records and get it. They have a right under HIPAA to get their records released to them by medical records. And so what I noticed, because medical records now reports to me, I see them releasing this all the time to folks. So the question really just becomes, do we do it electronically and by default? It isn't a question of do we do it. Yeah. That's, it's, it's a, a leap that you got to get the organization through, but once you get yeah. there... They, you'll hear some squeaking, and then uh, this is to my fellow colleagues out there. It, the, the, the pain doesn't last forever; it does go away. <laughs> you know, we did that with Open Notes last year, and I'll just be perfectly honest: I actually lost some political capital on that fight. That was a really tough fight. Yeah. And uh, but ultimately, it went through, and it's been, in, in essence, a non-event. That's good to know because I'm I'm starting to head down that path myself right now. Yeah. So that's great <laughs> advice. I want to ask you one more question, if I can. In terms of advice for existing CMIOs looking to expand their leadership capability, being able to get direct reports, being able to have more of a say in strategic decisions, the, the old-fashioned CMIO role was more of, hey, engage with physicians and keep them from causing too much of a ruckus. We don't want them going to the board with stuff. There, there's a movement towards more leadership out there. What's your suggestion for CMIOs to make that leap towards leadership? I would say it's all about the skills. And the skills that you need to do this job well, you did not learn in medical school. You have to learn them if you want to do it. And one of the biggest challenges, I think, out of the gate is that in order to gain those skills, you won't necessarily get paid your hourly wage in order to do it. I remember when I first um, was asked to serve on our medical group board, um, I had a number of my colleagues who really laughed, kind of laughed at me for not getting paid my hourly rate to sit in a board meeting. And the question, the question I was trying to ask is a question that some other leaders I've learned asked, which is, if I'm going to do something new and different, the only question that really matters is what skill am I going to gain from having done it? And so I would say go after the skills and, and Probably the best way to do that is the top-down and bottom-up approach. The bottom-up is, let me learn on a granular level everything I can and should know about IT. And then the top-down is, let me serve on task forces and committees and boards to understand how business and clinical decisions are actually made. And the combination of those two things can be incredibly powerful. That is great advice. I absolutely love that. And I think maybe we'll... We'll end on that. Uh, perhaps, though, if people wanted to get in contact with you, do you? You sounds like you're on Twitter. Uh, could they reach out to you on LinkedIn? Is that all right? Yes, absolutely. I'm just Lee David Milligan on LinkedIn and Twitter. It's uh, Lee underscore MD underscore IT. Well, Lee, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I think this has been phenomenal. The the insights of a physician who's made the leap over to the CIO side. Uh, so once again, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate the time, and it's great catching up. Absolutely. And so that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Mark Weissman. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmiopodcast at gmail.com or go to the website, cmiopodcast.com. Send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, general feedback, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.